good night. Hello, cocktail lovers. Welcome to Paris Cocktail Talk. I'm Forrest Collins, and I'm here to talk to you about cocktailing in the French capital and bring you other small batch drinks news from France and beyond. So this month we celebrate International Women's Day on March 8th, uh, and I thought that would be a great occasion to bring together two fabulous topics, which is women and champagne. So to take a deeper dive into this topic, I invited Cynthia Kutu into the studio. She's the founder of Delectable. It's a champagne networking club for women, and we're going to talk about her experience with women as champagne drinkers and as champagne makers. Welcome, Cynthia. Thank you for having me. And I'm especially glad that I invited Cynthia into the studio because I see she brought something. Why don't you tell me what, what you've got there? Yeah, so I didn't know if I should spring it on her before or after the uh, interview started, but I'm a big advocate of practicing what I preach. So I brought us um, a bottle of champagne made hey. by a woman. And we will we'll be women drinking champagne Yay. made by women. So um, this one is made by Sandrine Olivier. Mm -hmm. She runs, uh, she owns and manages uh, Veuve Olivier Fils. And she's fourth generation. Um, she took over from her father. Um, but it goes way back to uh, the turn of the century. Her great-grandmother, yeah, great-great-grandmother, um, used to make corsets for uh, women in Paris. And with the money that she made, she bought land in Champagne. And um, started, her husband started planting grapes. And then um, the son took over, and he unfortunately died, and his wife uh, took over. And she is the, the, the famous widow. Mm -hmm. So Sandrine's grapes, um, she has about 18 hectares. She uses 12 of them to make her own champagnes. And the other six, uh, she sells her grapes to Bollinger, um, Pommerie, Ayala. Um, and she special, because she's from the Vallée de la Marne, um, she has a lot of Pinot Meunier, which is a grape that's very suited for the climate there. And so a lot of her champagnes are have a long, a big percentage of um, Pinot Meunier in the blends. So what I brought you is one of her special blends. It's um, it's called Secret Nature. Mm. And if I remember correctly, because I'm not, I don't um, know the tasting notes by by heart, but it's 35% um, Chardonnay. 10 Pinot Meunier and 55% um, uh, Pinot Meunier. And what makes it special is that it spends a minimum of um, five years aging. Oh, okay. So a normal uh, non-vintage champagne, um, the minimum requirement is 15 months. For a vintage, it's three years. And she does, she ages hers minimum uh, five years. This one in particular is seven years. And do, I don't know if there's rules for champagne. Do they age them in steel tanks or do they age them in barrels? How does that work? Um, that's up to the uh, winemaker. Uh -huh. um, sometimes they'll use one, two, three different containers um, because each one produces different aromas and flavors. So in Sandrine's case, um, she ages uh, her Chardonnay in steel tank, but also a small portion in small oak barrels. Interesting. Um, and then her, yeah, it's mostly the Chardonnay that she ages um, in the okay. oak. So, And while you open that, I'm just going to say something to the listeners. So I've known Cynthia for a while, and I have been familiar with Delectable, her um, her champagne networking club. And I had the occasion to go to her champagne and cheese workshop recently. And um, I'm going to let you hear when she opens the bottle because we learned, you know, that you, you don't want it to pop crazy pop like you always hear in parties. But you want it to give, what's it called, the champagne sigh? 
Yeah, like that. So that's our that's our bottle popping open, and uh, I'm looking forward to tasting it. Thank you for bringing that down. That's going to be a very nice treat. It was um, actually up, and it's seven flights of um, stairs oh, yeah. up here. And <laughs> so if I sound kind of funny, it's because I'm out of breath. Yeah, I usually try to get here um, significantly earlier than I'm going to be recording, so I can take a flight and take a rest. Take a flight, take a rest, because I'm with you. I'm always sounding very, very kind of winded by the time I get to the top, but, but it's good exercise. And now it makes me feel like we deserve that champagne even more. For sure. So there you go. I don't know if you can hear the bubbles. Oh, I can hear them. Yeah. Nice. All right. We're going to pass one of those over to Catherine. All right. Okay. The other special thing that I didn't mention is, um, it's a zero dosage. Okay. So it's usually, that's usually for like champagne geeks. Yeah. Um, so there's no sugar added, uh, in the blend, um, when they, uh, um, degorge, uh, get rid of the yeast. And you said it's called sucre nature, right? So I'm assuming that's why it's called nature because there's no sugar added. I, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, cheers. Sorry, listeners, I bet you're jealous. All right. <laughs> Sorry. There we go. And I even have a cooler to keep it cool for us. Yay. Okay. Well, now that we're settled and comfortable, at least I am, um, let's talk a little bit more about Delectable. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro to the listeners, it's a sh- women's only champagne networking club. But why don't you tell tell the listeners a little bit more about what that means and, and, and what you get up to with Delectable? Whoa. <laughs> So originally it started out, um, uh, I was meeting, I I was teaching an international MBA class um, in Paris and I had 20 um, students, 19 of them were young women. And during breaks and after class, they started picking my brain about life, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I realized, wow, there's a lot of young women out there that want to be mentored, coached. Then I was meeting women my age um, who had... um, 50 plus, let's say, um, who had a lot of experience um, and they were at the stage where they wanted to give back and share. And at the same time, I was also um, getting my uh, WSET uh, certification and I realized um, that the wine world was male dominated. So what I decided to do was connect the dots and champagne was the pretext to get these women together to network. And at my very first event, I realized um, that most of the women could tell me if they preferred Champagne X or Champagne Y, but they didn't know why. And so I started um, teaching Champagne Masterclasses for women. And I also made the conscious choice of only using champagnes made by women. It was my little way of supporting women in a male-dominated industry. So... I started teaching classes, um, and I still did networking events, um, and I try to, um, every month I partner with um, a female entrepreneur to try and showcase what she does. Um, for example, the shoe, cool shoes I'm wearing right now, they have interchangeable heels. Um, they were invented by um, a Canadian woman who lives here in, in France, has a boutique here, Tanya Heath um, Shoes, and uh, we did a tasting in her shop and it was just to give her some visibility and to um, give her some exposure. And, um, you know, so that was one example. Another is, um, well, you know, Jennifer, we did a mm-hmm. cheese and champagne uh, workshop. So she's a cheese expert. Um, I've done it with a lingerie expert, uh, bubbles and bras, uh, chocolate uh, and champagne, yoga and champagne. 
And so those are like monthly events. And depending on the size of them, um, if they're big events, um, my experience um, at networking events or conferences is that unless you have a really outgoing personality, you go to a conference and if you don't know anyone, um, it's kind of hard um, to walk up with people and say, hi, I'm Forrest, or hi, yeah. I'm Cynthia. So I came up with this kind of trick uh, from my bigger events. Um, I get uh, the women to register online beforehand, and there are two questions that they need to answer be- besides their name and address and all of that, is their area of expertise and their area of interest, areas of interest. And based on their prof- self-profiling, Um, I divide them up into three groups. Um, And when they get to my event, I explain to them that in a typical champagne blend, there are three grape varieties, the Chardonnays, the Pinot Noirs, and the Meuniers. And I said, you're a Chardonnay. Um, Your task is to find the other Chardonnays in the room and ask them three questions. So the questions depend on what the event is. Um, If I'm co-organizing it with someone, if there's a theme, if they're a goal, um, the, I tailor the questions. Um, so there was one uh, event I did in um, Belgium, uh, not Belgium, in uh, Berlin for the Global Female, Summit, uh, Global Female Leaders Summit. And it was 40 CEOs and senior executives, and the theme was kind of passion. And so I, the question for them was, okay, you need to find the other Chardonnays, um, ask them what their passion is, and whether that passion has helped them or uh, hindered them to get to where they are today. So I kind of forced all these senior women to do a deep dive. Mm -hmm. There are others that are much lighter note, but um, I kind of sniffed them out uh, based on their interests and expertise. Um, Another event, uh, I saw that one woman um, was in, she was Australian, and she was in Paris for a writing workshop. And I saw uh, that another woman was a former journalist and editor. And so I thought, hmm, I'll make sure those two women are in the same group. Um, And lo and behold, um, they were off in their own corner (laughs) most of the night. But turns out they were both uh, really interested in murder mysteries. And they were both uh, reading, uh, uh, sorry, writing their own murder mystery. And they had the same favorite murder mystery author. Mm -hmm. So it gives you an idea of... Um, what can can happen? It's a it's kind of magical sometimes. You just never know who's going to hit it off with who. For my and I try to incorporate the networking component even in my master classes. I introduce myself, but I get the women to tell me who they are, where they're from, what they do, so that if there's any connections that can be made at that particular class or later, that I know. Oh, hey, I know someone. Um, and so I, I do that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, I, I can say firsthand from having gone to the champagne and cheese workshop that it was not only an interesting group of women, but I think there was a connection or two that were that was made there that I saw. So, um, so I think that yeah, sounds like what you're doing is working. Um, so, why did you decide to go focus just on champagne as opposed to wine in general? Um, quite a few reasons. Um, the first was. Um, an intellectual challenge, because champagne is the most technical of all wines. Um, and the more you learn about wine, the more you realize there is to learn, um, because it touches on everything, history, culture, agriculture, um, chemistry, you name it. And so it was. I chose champagne for um, 
an intellectual challenge. I figured if I'm going to master one wine, I'll, I'll go for champagne. But I also like the festive nature of it. I also like the, I chose it also because I knew that a lot of champ- uh, women drank champagne. Um, and um, also the more I started learning about champagne, the more I realized the role of women in the history of champagne. So those are four reasons. Yeah, I think that's good. And I definitely want to ask you a little bit more about that. Um, a, a couple of questions down. Um, so you talked about you were certified, you, you did the WW set and you did it here in France. Do you feel like having gone through that as a woman here, that that experience was different than it would have been had you done it in Canada where you're from? Um, yes, I'm pretty sure it would be different. I mean, I haven't done it, but my guess, I mean, I spoke to, well, during my classes um, here in Paris, I felt that in order to relate to the instructors, I had to look for um, things in common with them. Um, so, you know, I remember one instructor, because we'd have lunch together, um, I was telling him that one time my tent had been attacked by a, a bear. And that really got him uh, more interested in getting to know me. He's like, wow. <laughs> and he, um, or another instructor I had, um, the fact that I like motorcycles. Um, so I found that in order to um, sort of build a relationship, a rapport with men in the wine industry, I had to find something in common with them. But I had a long chat with, um, so the Best Sommelier of the World contest has, uh, I think it started in 1969. Um, the first woman to make it onto the podium was in 2013. Um, she came in second. Guess where she was from? Canada? Yes. Yay. Cheers to that. So her name is Véronique Rivet. And um, she could have worked anywhere in the world. And she decided to open up a wine bar um, near where my parents live. And so when I went to visit, I had a chat with her. And, um, and I also saw her. Um, she was uh, giving a master class about uh, Canadian wines at the Cité du Vin in Bordeaux. And that's when I really got to know her. And she told me that um, she started her wine career in, um, in Alsace when she was a young Canadian. And she told me that you have no idea what it was like to be a young Canadian woman trying to sell Alsatian wines to Alsatians. Mm. She said so many doors were slammed uh, in my face. And I have to say that in, in Canada, um, I think... Ooh, it's not an issue. I mean, men and women do whatever they want, and there's a lot, there's a lot more feminism, but it's not necessarily um, uh, exposed. Uh, just it's a common uh, occurrence, um, and so there's a lot more women in the wine industry, um, and there's no second guessing them. They don't have the same challenges that they do um, here in France. And what about, um, I know you've, you've talked to me a little bit or also in your workshop, your observations in the ways that women and men taste differently. I don't know. Or not that they taste differently, yeah. but sorry, women only tastings versus mixed tastings. Well, I don't think anyone's done a scientific study on sort of what happens on um, male or female taste buds. Um, I know that um, female Tasters, um, especially when they're pregnant, for example, have super developed uh, senses uh, for smelling. Um, but let's ignore that. Um, 
I've noticed a difference in behavior, not necessarily on their capacity to to uh, to taste. And it was actually um, when uh, when I was studying um, uh, to get certified, um, I I started seeking out other female wine professionals. And I went to a tasting organized by Femme de Bourgogne. Um, so it was, I don't know, there must have been about 20 women that were present. And um, I started chatting with one of them. And um, she said that men and, men and women didn't behave the same way at tastings, that men were more interested in the technical information, like the methods of vinification, the grape percentage of grape varieties, and that they often use their knowledge as power. And she gave the example, and it was, uh, she said that, you know, sometimes guys will come up to my stand and they start ex- mansplaining to me mm-hmm. how I make my wine. And she just rolled her eyes. Um, and, and I said, I asked her, I said, well, what about women? How do they behave? And she said that if there are men present, they, they're either intimidated or bored. And so that's what sort of gave me the idea. Uh, it was my sort of curious George side. What would happen if I did women only? And so I've been doing that now for for a few years. And um, so all of my delectable events on my calendar are for women only. And sometimes I do private ones um, where there are couples. Like someone will say, oh, I've got these friends coming to town. Can you do a private class just for, for us? We'll be like three, four couples. And... I can honestly say that there's a big difference um, in terms of the behavior. The women um, are more interested in understanding um, what they like and why um, and how to get the best bang for their buck because between 75 and 85 percent uh, of wine is purchased by women. It's when they're out doing their groceries, um, they pick up the daily wine. And it's men who tend to be more interested in the trophy bottles, um, collecting wine and saying, hey, look what uh, this uh, 1956 bottle of DRC. You won't won't really hear women saying that. And so that's a lot of the women that come to my classes, because I teach in English, um, have also told me that... um, they're, they're, they're often fresh off the boat. They work for multinationals um, and they arrive here and, and they, they realize, oh my God, there's a, a poll every Friday evening. Um, champagne is served. I don't know very much about champagne. And they feel insecure, in fact, about their lack of wine knowledge. And some of them have told me, you know, they've gone to classes that have often be, been taught by a young Parisian male. And that tends to um, uh, make them feel even more insecure about their knowledge. Uh, And so the feedback that I've been getting is that they feel comfortable um, asking me um, questions that might sound silly, um, but no questions are silly. So um, and and some of the things they they ask me or talk about, um, I don't think men would talk about. I was showing, for example, different types of champagne stoppers. And there's one that I don't recommend um, just because it's too fiddly. Um, mm-hmm. And one woman said, oh, that looks like my diaphragm. Oh. And I was like, oh, I said, well, I I've never had one. I don't know what they look like, but if you say so. Um, or there's this other time um, uh, we were comparing the colors between two champagnes, a, a blanc de blanc and a blanc de noir. And one woman um, was saying, the one on the, the, the right looks... Um, uh, uh, not fuzzy, but uh, I forget what word she, she looked. I was like, uh, 
cloudy. The cloudy was mm-hmm. the word she used. And I was like, it's champagne. It can't be cloudy. So there's something up here. So I, I went over and it actually had to do with the temperature. Um, condensation had built up on the glass. And so I just kind of wiped it discreetly. And I think I said, I think the cloudiness is gone. I just, oh my God, if a guy had been here, I never would have heard <laughs> yes. the end of this. So um, I, I guess um, I, I, they're more at ease um, to ask questions. Um, and they really want to understand what they, they like and why. And it's more about empowering themselves. Um, and I, I'd say that's where the big difference is. Um, women want to know for themselves and mm-hmm. not for a power trip. And so when I do um, classes or tastings when men and women are present, there's systematically a guy in the room that will try and outsmart me um, and show how much more he knows than me or, uh, oh, do you know this or do you know that? And, you know, I try to be diplomatic. I'm Canadian. Um, so, but sometimes I like yeah. biting my tongue. But, um, yeah, there's way more power trips involved uh, when there's guys around, especially older. I'd mm. say the younger, not so much. Um, but uh, as soon as there's an old French guy in the room, um, I, I just I cringe. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the role women have historically played in Champagne. I know that there's been some important developments uh, that you know we can credit to women. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Uh, oh, we'd probably need about three podcast sessions. I know, for that. I know. Let's just give them the greatest some hits. highlights. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I, I'll suppose that people know how Champagne's made. Um, just to go quickly. Um, so Veuve Clicquot, um, three main contributions. The one is the riddling table um, because she was obsessed with trying to speed up production and wanted to find a way to uh, riddle, uh, turn the bottles uh, so that the yeast goes to the neck of the, bo- um, the bottle quick, quicker. And so she invented the riddling table. Um, in French, it's a pupitre, it's the A-frame. Mm-hmm. Um, she also, um, there was a comet um, one year, uh, I think it was eight, eight, I can't remember the year. Um, and farmers, um, are kind of superstitious and whenever there's a comet, it's usually a good sign that you'll have great harvest. And so she decided to, um, only use the grapes from that comet year, um, to make, uh, the very first vintage champagne, because most uh, champagnes, the non-vintage, are a mix of several years. So she was the first to only use grapes from one year, um, and it was the Champagne de la Comète. And so she was the first to start um, that. Um, She also um, invented the uh, rosé d'assemblage method, which um, before her... uh, you basically had to macerate the, the red grapes for a very limited time. Um, you know, if you fall asleep on the job, you end up with red wine. And so she thought it was too unpredictable, too finicky, high maintenance. And she came up with the idea of mixing the white wine with the red wine. Um, it's a lot more reliable. And um, that's the method that's most commonly used today. So those are three things just for Madame Bricot. Um, Madame Pomery um, was the first to uh, purchase um, chalk pits, and um, she needed space to age her, her champagne. She was doing well um, and needed more space, so she bought up the uh, chalk pits that were 
um, dug up by the Romans in the 3rd to 5th century and transformed them into what's called les crières, where they, almost all the big houses um, age their champagnes now. She also, um, well, it's a debate on who invented it, but Brut Champagne, um, I think uh, Perrier Jouet claims the invent- invention, but she was the first um, to have a commercial success with it because up until her, um, most of the champagnes um, were very sweet. Um, it was more of a dessert uh, wine. And she had a lot of um, English clients and wanted to please them, and they like drier. The Russians are more into sweet champagne, the English into dry. And so she came up with the, she developed the idea of Brut Champagne, and it really took off with her. She, so that's another one. Um, Madame Bollinger also invented uh, uh, several things um, that are a little bit more technical, um, so I'll, I'll spare you. But there, there's one that's easy to understand. So um, in the 19th century, most of the, um, the vineyards in France were attacked by the phylloxera louse, and all of the um, vines had to be ripped out of the ground and uh, replaced. And um, Boulanger had three plots that were somehow miraculously um, preserved from phylloxera. Now they're down to two because it's still, uh, those plots are still uh, vulnerable to phylloxera. So they've got two plots. And she had the idea of um, making um, uh, the wines, the base wines from those two plots. And it's called Vieille Vigne Française. Um, so they're super, super intense um, flavor-wise and aroma-wise. Um, I was talking to the cellar master there, and he told me that he can only drink half a glass. That wow. It's just like way too intense for him. Is it hard to get your hands on a bottle of that? Yeah, there's hardly... I, I, I forget. He, he told me the number of bottles, but um, and yeah, there's not many around, and they're super expensive. So if listeners want to support women in Champagne, what do you recommend, aside from attending Delectable events, which I will put... Uh, uh, links to, to that in the show notes, but what else can they do? Do you want to give any shout outs to any other women champagne makers they can follow along? Uh, Sandrine, this is Veuve Olivier et Fils. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. So that's one. I'll put links to that in the show notes. Uh, what else do you recommend when people want to, you know, support women in champagne? Oh God, there's so many things you can do. Um, well, on my uh, social media, I don't really talk very much about me and, and my events. You'll, you'll see that they're, they're listed there. But I try to tell the stories uh, about the women behind the bottles uh, in the past and the present. And so um, if they want to learn about the women behind the bottles, um, they can follow me. Um, and then they'll see that there's events where they can go meet um, not necessarily just my events, but other uh, events. For example, there's a group um, of nine women in Champagne called um, La Transmission, Femmes en Champagne, and they organize workshops. Um, the nine of them get together. One workshop that uh, I went to was um, the influence of the shape of a, a glass on your experience of Champagne. Um, so it's getting to know them, uh, getting to... Uh, to taste their champagnes, uh, what else? Um, share the love, um, um, learn about them, and talk about them. Mm. And drink their champagne if you can. 
Um, what, so listeners, I really like Cynthia. What she says is she empowers women one bottle of champagne at a time. And I have to say, I literally saw this in action when I was at her workshop because one of the guests there, it was the first time she'd ever opened a bottle of champagne. So mm-hmm. we were going through the, um, walking through how to, as Cynthia was showing us, how to correctly open a bottle. So uh, she empowered that young lady to open a bottle properly and she will never open a bottle of champagne badly in her life. So I thought that was quite a nice little thing, but seriously, I do think it's, I I love it as a tagline. Is there anything else that you want to say about that to the listeners? It's not just empowering the women who attend my events to give them the tools to better understand what they like and why, but it's also empowering the female entrepreneurs that I partner with and the women who make champagne. So it's kind of on all fronts. Um, I, you know, I was joking about it for the longest time, and it's kind of just stuck, and now I'm using it as a, as a tagline. But I think it's true. I think it's true from my experience. I think that, uh, yeah, I think uh, women in all three of those categories are benefiting. So um, if listeners want to follow along with you, I'm going to put links to your, to your Instagram, your Facebook, your webpage. Is there anything else they can do if they want to follow along or know more about your events? Um, my newsletter. Um, I don't have time to do weekly newsletters, but I do a monthly one. I usually send it out sometime the first week. And I try to do uh, an in-depth article about a woman um, involved in in champagne. Um, I give tips. Um, I try to sum up what I've done on social media as well, because a lot of people um, boycott uh, social media. So, um, and in... In the newsletter, I also mention other events outside mine where they can um, uh, go taste uh, champagne or I recommend uh, champagne bars, for example. Um, I have my favorites. Um, Yeah, so the newsletter, I guess. Great. There you go. Sign up for the newsletter if you want to get more of that insider information. And I will, again, put links to that in the show notes so you can go to the show notes and find it all. Um, so Cynthia, as you know, I usually ask my guests to do a monthly cocktail. And so I asked you about doing a champagne cocktail. And why don't you tell me a little bit about <laughs> about your response? Yeah. So I took my time answering you because it wasn't sitting well with me. And I mean, I hope your listeners have figured out by now that I'm not a wine snob, but and I'm not a champagne snob, but the flavors and aromas in champagne are very delicate. And if you mix them with something out, uh, something else in a cocktail, you're kind of losing um, the whole point of um, the champagne. So I don't drink champagne cocktails, but um, I do recommend um, using uh, Prosecco in, in, in cocktails because it's made in a different way. It's a lot fruitier, and so it goes a lot better with um, uh, mixes like, for example, a mimosa um, and uh, orange juice and and um, champagne, uh, sorry, orange juice and uh, mm-hmm. Prosecco go really well. But my favorite is a Bellini. And um, I discovered it uh, in a previous life when I was a starving student and treated myself to a trip to Venice. And it's uh, Prosecco and peach puree. And I had it um, at the Harry's Bar uh, where Hemingway used to hang out. And whenever I drink a Bellini, it just brings me back 25 years to that first uh, trip to to Venice. And it's really refreshing. It's a nice summer drink, too. Yeah, it is a nice drink. And I do appreciate that you that you did bring that up, that you don't have to use champagne in these cocktails. I think sometimes people feel a little 
obliged or obligated or they feel like they're being cheap or they're doing it wrong if they're using a different kind of sparkling wine. So um, so I think it's it's a good good bit of information for the readers on top of the idea that they should go make a Bellini because it's a, it's a nice cocktail to have. So I think that's kind of wrapping up our time for now. So I'm going to say thank you very much, Cynthia, for coming and joining us and talking about women in champagne. Thank you for having me. And thank you especially. Cheers. cheers for that. And uh, yeah, so that's pretty much a wrap for this month's episode. Um, come back next month. We'll be interviewing Ruba Corey. If you were listening to the last show, you'll probably be expecting that one for this, but we did a quick switcheroo. So so stick around for that one next month. Um, uh, and what else? If you're looking for more cocktail and drinks talk between shows, head over to the site 52martinis.com. If you want to carry me around in your pocket to know where to drink your cocktails in Paris, download our iOS app, uh, Paris Cocktails, which is a guide to where to drink cocktails in Paris. As always, thank you to today's guest and to you listeners for tuning in or downloading. Additional thanks to World Radio Paris for editing and production. And you may be listening to this through iTunes, but do remember that they actually have a full radio station with a whole bunch of programs on it. So um, so if you like this show, you might want to go over and see what else they've got on their, on their roster because they've got some cool stuff going on there. And also like their Facebook page to give them a little support. Um, thank you to Sun Little for the music that we use. I will say once more, I'm going to put links to all this in the show notes so you can go and follow it up there. As usual, I do remind you to drink responsibly. And, uh, you know, I love doing the podcast, but it makes me feel much better if you leave comments because otherwise I feel like I'm just shouting into a void and no one's listening. So if you like what I'm doing, please go and drop a quick review or a critique or just, you know, tell me how you're doing and what you like to drink. And until next time, cheers. In the river,